Uh, Today, if you turn with me to the Gospel of John, looking at uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus, John chapter 12, it's on page 898 in these Bibles in the pews. I was asked, uh, Lori Lynn asked me, said, uh, do you like preaching from this pulpit? I said, this was the pulpit for many, many years before we uh, built in 2004, changed the front and built a different pulpit. And I said, this, in fact, this, this top lips off and there's a much smaller um, lectern underneath it. And I said, the only thing about that pulpit is there's, there's no shelving anywhere. I mean, except at the very bottom. So if you have a Bible or a hymn book or a glass of water. And I said, one Sunday night, I was preaching, and I had a glass of water, and I went to, to put it down here, and I missed the shelf, and it all poured down where the microphone connects to the... <laughs> and I said, it's funny, the memories that come up uh, when you think about that, but... A lot of sermons have been preached through the decades uh, from, from this pulpit. James Montgomery Boyce was a pastor of 10th, Montgomery, uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many, many years <clears throat> and downtown church. And so people off the street would come into the service. And uh, around the, the walls, you could, you could walk around the pews, like where ours go all the way to the walls, there was a walkway. And so I believe it was uh, either on a Sunday morning he was preaching and a man came in off the street that no one knew and he, he uh, kind of threatening looking and he, he proceeded to walk slowly uh, around the outside during, during the sermon in front, and then he walked right in front of the pulpit and he kept going around while James Montgomery Boyce is preaching and this, this is in Philadelphia and he made one loop and he started around again while well, the ushers kind of grabbed him and fellowshiped with him outside. <laughs> and Boyce leaned into the microphone and he said, at 10th Prez, you only go around once. So, <laughs> has nothing to do with the pulpit. But we uh, come to, to John chapter uh, 12. I want to begin reading in verse 9. This is, gives a little bit of the context because what happens in the last week of Jesus' life and ministry on earth uh, before his crucifixion is prompted, a lot of the tension and the hostility is prompted by what happened right before that, and that was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And we often fail to connect those two things. So I'll begin reading in verse 9 of John chapter 12. Hear God's word. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now here's a verse we often miss. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live with expectations of you and others that often lead to great disappointment. And we would pray that you would use this passage of Scripture by the power of your Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts, to give us a clearer picture of Christ as King and us as your servants. In Jesus' name, amen. Just about three years ago, I believe, there was a project done at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And it was a study of religion in America, and it documented six types of unbelievers in America. And here, briefly, was their description, the titles they gave toward those who did not profess belief in God. The first they called the intellectual atheist or agnostic, the intellectual This person sees himself or herself as very advanced intellectually, at least too advanced to believe in religion. And so they seek other like-minded unbelievers, which they usually find on blogs or on YouTube. The second type of unbeliever, according to this project, is the activist. The activist. This person is very proactive, working for... for, uh, uh, relief efforts and human uh, humanistic causes and and they're very socially oriented but it's that's all it is they have no belief there's no religious motivation to that third is the seeker agnostic this is the person they describe that considers that religion or belief in god may possibly be true but they are much more comfortable living without certainty fourth category is the anti-theist. This person believes religion is actually evil and actively engages in working against any kind of religion or religious influence. The fifth type of unbeliever, non-believer, is the non-theist. The non-theist basically has no interest in religious concepts. If you were to bring it up, they say, I'm not interested in that at all. I'm not even going to have a conversation about it. The last, the sixth category that they had in their project was, and maybe this hits home in the South, was called the ritual atheist or the ritual agnostic. This person really has no religious beliefs, or if they do, they're very minimal, but they regularly attend religious ceremonies because they find those ceremonies, like a church service, meet some kind of psychological or social need in their life. Some people assume that those of us who are Christ followers have a personal need to believe because we are weak and our faith gives us hope. And we need a crutch to lean on to get us through the real issues of life, which we can't avoid. But I would say the other is also true, and that is that unbelievers have a great vested interest in their unbelief. They have a vested interest and having no moral restraint or especially no moral accountability. 
In fact, their unbelief might accommodate a person's unwillingness to forgive another person or to let go of their bitterness. Unbelievers can choose not to face the difficult questions of pain and suffering and design of the universe. And often these vested interests in unbelief override whatever evidence is put in front of a person. Now in John chapter 11, the reason I wanted to begin at the part of 12 and did not go back to 11 to read the whole account was because of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. If you're familiar with that story, if you're not, read chapter 11. But, but it was done, here was this man who had been dead for days and buried. And Jesus goes there and in broad daylight in front of a large crowd of people calls this man forth from a grave and he walks out. This wasn't done but with a handful of people in a dark corner somewhere. This was very, very public. And it says in the passage that many who saw believed, but others went away and began to plot Jesus' death. Their hearts were just as hard after seeing this man raised from the dead as before. Now, I don't know about you, but if we were driving home today and I said, Barbara, why don't we drive through Rose Hill Cemetery and look at the flowers and just see and And there's this grave open and a person who'd been dead for days walking around. That might make an impression on me. (laughs) It would probably make an impression on you. And you'd say, if I saw something like that, I would believe. Not necessarily. They had a vested interest in not believing. So why, why did they not believe? Was it lack of evidence? Was it lack of viable proof? No, I, I would say the raising of Lazarus probably qualifies as proof for anyone that is at least bit open-minded. The religious leaders of the Jesus' day that begin to play a key part now in seeing that he is put to death, they had a vested interest in keeping their lives as peaceful as possible living under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. That was the key motivation for the Jewish authorities' hatred of Jesus. It was not just that they called, that he called them hypocrites and confronted them and, and could answer their questions and go far beyond that. Uh, he had pointed out their hypocrisy before other people. It wasn't just that. It was the fact that they feared a growing movement that would follow Jesus that might lead to an uprising and the Romans would have to come in and crush it. And they would lose the freedoms they had under the Romans. It was typical that the Romans allowed a certain amount of home-run government when they conquered these nations. They did not just go in and displace all of the leadership. They let them have a certain amount of autonomy. And so Jesus was threatening this situation. R.C. Sproul wrote an essay about modern persecution in the Christian church, and it's so ironic for those of us that got up and read the news this morning and read about these bombings in Egypt, and I don't know what the figures are now. I didn't look since about 8.30 this morning, but 25 in a Coptic church that were killed by a bomb as they gathered for worship on Palm Sunday. What are they, about seven, eight hours in front of us, I guess? And and they had gathered, and I, I would assume those numbers were conservative from reading it this morning. But he wrote this essay about modern persecution in the Christian church. And in the essay, he asked, quote, With so much persecution of Christians in other countries, why is there not more persecution here in the U.S.? 
Part of the answer is that this country was founded by refugees from religious persecution, and they tried to do everything in their power to structure our nation and our laws to guarantee religious freedom. But we have seen a shift away from toleration toward Christianity and a growing hostility from the secular world to the Christian faith in particular. But he goes on to say that another part of the story of why there does, is not more persecution of Christians in America is that American Christians have become very skilled at avoiding conflict. It has been said in the U.S. that we, the church, have been placed on a reservation. And we're allowed to exist and to practice our faith as long as we do so on the reservation. But we are forbidden from moving off the reservation into the public square. We are simply not allowed to do that. But you know who also howls the loudest when Christians wander off the reservation? Other Christians. Why? Because they are living peacefully on the reservation and would rather live peacefully on the reservation than disturb the world with the good news of the gospel. And so R.C. Sproul said that was what was happening in Jerusalem. Those to whom God had entrusted his word, the religious leaders, had compromised again and again so as not to upset the Romans and possibly endanger their positions of prestige. So when Jesus attracts this following, and now when he comes into Jerusalem that we're going to look at for just a few moments... The Jewish leader said, if we leave this man alone, he will stir up trouble and he will make our lives difficult and we will lose our positions of prestige and power. So what happens? Palm Sunday. We read the passage. It began in verse 12 of what happens. There it is. It's Passover. The population of Jerusalem would swell to triple what it normally was, like any city that has a special event, and if you have that many people crowding into a, to an area, the, the law is on high alert. Basically, you know, a lot could happen, the mob mentality, and so the Roman, it was a tense atmosphere in that sense. And as I mentioned, that just days before, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. As a result of that, many of the Jews had come to believe in Jesus' message, Uh, This chapter, chapter 12, begins with Jesus and the disciples being in a home. Mary brings this expensive perfume and anoints him for his death and burial. All this has taken place, and now they come. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He was intentionally going public. This was unlike anything he had done in his ministry. Always up to this point, he had withdrawn from the crowds. He had, he had pulled back, but now he is going to go as public as possible into the largest crowd as possible as he enters the, the city. So all of this is premeditated. It is extremely intentional. In Webster's Dictionary, it says that a king is a male monarch of a major territorial unit and one who inherits that position and rules for life. So with kings, there are no elections, there are no term limits. We as modern Americans know little about what it would be like to live under the domination of a king. History tells us some were fairly good, some were ruthless and cruel. And Israel did not always have a king. 
That's why I asked Justin to read the passage from 1 Samuel this morning, so that in case you did not know, you would see how they came to have a king, and that is they, they wanted three things. They wanted provision, they wanted protection, and they wanted direction. And they looked at these other nations, and they said, we want a human king, one we can see, not the God king, one we can see who will provide for us and protect us and direct us. And so they went to Samuel, who was the liaison between them and God, the prophet, and they said, tell God, we want a king. And Samuel goes, and God had already told him before not to have a king. And if you read, the, read along with the passage or heard it read, you saw that God warns them that you're going to regret this. You will regret having a human king. You think it's going to be the solution to your problems, but it's going to create more problems than you can imagine. And here's why it's going to create problems. You want provision and protection and direction, but here's the reality. The king will take your sons and place them before his chariots and in his chariots, and they will run as soldiers, he will take of your daughters, and they will be cooks and perfumers and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your seed, a tenth of your servants, a tenth of your vineyards. He'll take your male servants, female servants. He'll take the best of what you have, a tenth of your flocks. He will take, over and over that phrase is used, he will take, he will take, he will take. And they're thinking, no, he will provide, and he will protect, and he will direct. How does royalty come to have such lavishness? They take it. They don't generate things. They take it. One of you gave me a booklet on Hampton Court when you traveled to England, and it, I guess you bought it there, or they gave it to you and had pictures. I was looking at those pictures of Hampton Court. There was the, uh, read about it. It's the royal residence given to Henry VIII in 1525. When James I, I'm surprised to read this, when James I spent Christmas there in 1601, they had so many guests that the 1,200 rooms were not enough. So they had to set up tents in the park. 1,200. Now, those of you that think you have big houses, okay, you can, some of that, you can let some of that guilt go this morning right there. 1,200. Well, how do they get that? How does royalty get such riches? They take so we may think, oh, if we just had a king, Israelites, fellow Jews, if we just had a king, they'll protect us and provide for us and direct us. And they do not. And that's what God is saying. You're going to regret this. Because who is responsible in our lives and in their lives to give protection and provision and direction? God is. They wanted a substitute for God. That's what they wanted. Because God has promised to do that for us is to protect you and to provide for you and to direct you. It's just a matter of choosing the right king. Do you want a human king or do you want Jesus as king? And he comes, and notice how he comes. He comes and they wave palm branches, it says in verse 13. Well, what was significant about that? I've, I've often wondered that. Uh, it, it comes from something that happened in the 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. We call that the intertestamental period. And much of that Jewish history is written down. And much of that history dealt with their battles and tension as the Greeks changed to the Romans and a group called the Seleucids. And there was, 
even warfare and battles between the Jews and some of these people. And so there was a man, his name was a national leader named Judas Maccabeus. And Judas Maccabeus became a national hero against these Seleucids uh, who had oppressed the Jews. And he put so much pressure on them that they, they forsook the temple and they let the Jews go back to the temple and to begin to worship the way they wanted to. And then later, his younger brother, Simon Maccabeus, drove these people out of Jerusalem altogether. And the Jews celebrated with a huge parade. And guess what they waved? They waved palm branches and they celebrated with music. And so from that point on, palm branches, waving palm branches like that became a symbol of Jewish nationalism. They expected Jesus to be the king who would deliver them now from the Romans, even as Maccabeus had done that before. He's on a donkey. Why did he ride a donkey? Well, there were two reasons. One, it was a fulfillment of prophecy that's quoted there. Zechariah 9.9 had prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on the foal of a donkey. Also, contrary to the way we think, we probably think a king ought to be on a stallion, riding on a donkey was a kingly act. King David rode on a donkey. That was a symbol of being the king. And so Jesus knew what he was doing. He was coming as a fulfillment of prophecy about being the Messiah, and he also was showing that he was a king, but he was not the type king they expected. What did they expect? They expected a king who was going to break the backs of the Romans. Even his own disciples had expected that right up to the very end. They thought, when they asked, when it... When are you going to set up your kingdom? Is it now or is it a little bit later? They meant the earthly kingdom. And yet he comes and he brings peace. The Gospels all focus on a little bit different details. In Mark chapter 11, he tells us as Jesus came down that road into Jerusalem on the donkey that all eyes were focused on him and that some of the people on the sides began to take their cloaks off and to put these in the road as a sign of of reverence, a gesture of reverence, as Jesus rides on this donkey down the road. And it was a magnificent gesture. Then in Luke chapter 19, it said, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles he had seen. And one group shouted, Hosanna! And the group behind them shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! I was reading a commentary this week, an an excellent commentary on the Gospel of John that says we really don't have an adequate translation of the word Hosanna. And and I didn't know what he meant. He He said Hosanna was only spoken by a person filled with joy. So you would not use that word if you weren't feeling a certain way. And the closest the closest translation we have is save now or save us. But he said that still doesn't do it justice to, to, to the way, what it meant to them. If you were angry, you used another word. If you were joyful, you used Hosanna. So as it says in, in Mark 11, the crowd in front as Jesus proceeds down is shouting, Hosanna, save now, save now. And the group behind, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in this This would have gone back and forth and back and forth as Jesus is proceeding down this road. It would have been an amazing 
An amazing scene. John, in the gospel, in the passage we read in verse 16, he gives some editorial comments. He said even the disciples missed the message that Jesus was sending, and they did not understand fully until after his resurrection. Verse 17 says apparently the raising of Lazarus was being talked about so much by people who had seen it. And there were, their reports were spreading about this man who had been dead, and now he was, he was raised by Jesus. He was brought by, he was called forth from the tomb. And verse 18 says they were coming to, to, to see him. And then finally, John says in verse 19, the Jewish authorities saw all the, the efforts they had put forth to confront Jesus and to, to arrest him, to seize him, to bind him, and to warn him and to threaten him, and their efforts had been useless. And John notes that even these enemies of Jesus say to each other, look, the entire world has gone after him. Despite all we've done to stop this, look at this, this huge crowd shouting Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in the last few moments I have, it's often said that the crowd that shouted Hosanna on Sunday shouted crucify on Friday. That's probably basically correct, but we don't know that for sure. We can assume that, well, if they were in Jerusalem and they went to see him, they would have been there before Pontius Pilate when Pilate said, do you want me to release this man or Barabbas? And they said, crucify him. Well, let's assume for a moment that at least some of the people were of the same group, that some of those that shouted, Hosanna shouted crucify later. What would cause such a switch? If that's true, what would cause shouts of adoration and respect to become shouts of calling for the man's death? Here's why I think it could have been the same people, because I think it happens to us, and that is expectations that God doesn't meet and how we respond when he doesn't meet them. We want Jesus on our terms, and we come to believe in Jesus. Or maybe you, were, you heard a little bit about the gospel, and the person told you if you believe in this Jesus, he's the Son of God, and he'll, so, he'll solve all your problems. And he will, if you're sick, he'll make you healthy. If, you, if you're poor, he'll make you wealthy. If, if you... If you lack wisdom, he'll, he'll give you knowledge. He'll, he'll do all the, he, suddenly your life will be, the problems you have, they'll be gone. He, he'll, he'll take them and you know, he'll make your marriage perfect. He'll, your family will be all that it should be. And, and then you find out it didn't go that way at all. Or it didn't go the way you thought. And you had certain expectations and now there's disappointment. Someone defined disappointment as that which occurs when the actual experience of something falls far short of what we anticipate. So they are expecting a military king. We're going to be free from our Roman oppressors. A centurion cannot walk into our house and take what he wants whenever he wants to. He can't pull his sword out and kill someone if he wants to. It was a totalitarian government over them. And they thought, you on the donkey are going to deliver us from them. That was their expectation. And of course, that is not what he came to do. Years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a very good book entitled Disappointment with God. 
when it first came out, I don't recall that any book had had such a title. In fact, it was a shocking title at that time, Disappointment with God. It really touched a nerve. And in the foreword, Philip Yancey wrote, As I worked on this project, I found that for many people there is a large gap between what they expect from their Christian faith and what they actually experience. From a steady diet of books, sermons, and personal testimonies, all promising triumph and success, they learn to expect dramatic evidence of God working in their lives. If they do not see such evidence, they feel disappointment, betrayal, and often guilt. As one woman said, I kept hearing the phrase personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but I found to my dismay that it is unlike any other personal relationship, for I never saw God or heard him or felt him or experienced the basic ingredients of a relationship. Either there's something wrong with what I was told or there's something wrong with me. Now back to his original description. Disappointment occurs when the actual experience of something falls far short of what we anticipate. I've asked people that say they don't believe or they very, very bitter toward God. How did this come about? What happened for you to develop this? And often there's great disappointment. There was that prayer that for that healing that didn't happen. Or there was that prayer for God to mend this marriage, and it didn't happen. Or it didn't happen the way they thought it would happen. Or there was this prayer for this business to succeed, and it goes bankrupt. Or there was this prayer for God to do whatever, and from all indications, he didn't do it. And the expectation and the hosanna, the praise, the joy becomes one of bitterness and anger. Could that be you today? As the woman said, either there's something wrong with what I was told or there's something wrong with me. It's nothing wrong with Jesus. Jesus is a king, but he's a king that didn't come to, in that case, overthrow the Romans. Uh, He came to rule in the hearts of people. He said the kingdom of God exists among you. When we come to trust in Christ as our Redeemer, we, are, we enter at that point. We enter into the kingdom of God. We are part of that. He is a servant king. He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He doesn't come to take, to take your sons and daughters and all these kinds of things. He comes to give, unlike an earthly king. His load is easy and his burden is light. So he came into Jerusalem that day riding on a donkey. The Bible says he will return. But when he comes back, he's going to be riding on a white horse with a sword to make war and to conquer all of his enemies. And the Bible says at that time that you and I and everyone's knees will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for sending Christ to live as a king and to die for the sins of people like us. We pray that if any one of us here are not trusting in that, if we're looking for other things to provide us with provision and protection and direction, that we would accept Christ's payment for our sin and give ourselves to you. We pray you'd make us the people you want us to be. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.